What a pleasure to be with you this morning. Our passages for this morning are set amid growing tensions and hostility surrounding the ministry of Jesus Christ. The city of Jerusalem resounded with turbulent praise and glad welcome just days earlier when he entered its streets on the back of a small donkey. But excited curiosity mingles with affront at Jesus' shocking courage to clear the temple floor of its market stalls. The chief priests and scribes burn with indignation. Who does he think he is? Crowds call him the prophet Jesus. Children call him the promised son of King David, delighting as he heals the blind and lame. The religious leaders call him a menace and a heretic. They confront Jesus, demanding his credentials. But Jesus brilliantly turns the tables on them, exposing their duplicity and dependence on the crowd. Then he starts telling stories, several parables about the kingdom of God and the true stripes of those who receive it or reject it. Matthew 21, 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's read Matthew 22, 1 through 14. You can find it in your workbook or in your Bible. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. If you have joined our parable study so far this summer, you will remember that parables are stories of surprise, precious pictures that reflect like a mirror what we need to see about God and about ourselves. And this story about the kingdom of God begins with a king and a wedding. Weddings today are no small affair, but this royal celebration would have doubtless involved multiple days of feasting. To launch the celebration, the king deploys messengers to call those who have been previously invited, but immediately we encounter crisis one in this story. The invited guests refuse to come. For you or me to decline a friend's wedding would not be a shock. Various conflicts are natural and understandable. But when one has been duly notified and invited by his king in advance of a royal wedding and then rejects the call to come, we see a far more serious problem. This smells of treason and rebellion. But the king of our story is not hasty. He sends another round of messengers with a winsome and compelling invitation. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. This banquet is a lavish affair, a picture of the king's glory, generosity, and joy. It echoes of the rich preparations described in Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Like that invitation, this is a call to life, to joy, to the fellowship and communion of the king. We might rightly be appalled at their response. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Here is high-handed disdain and rebellion against the sovereign ruler. And here is a microcosm of two ways that sinful human hearts dishonor and reject the invitation to the kingdom of God, whether through casually dismissing the call or through violent rejection of God's message and messengers. God has been calling and inviting people to come to him from the very beginning of creation's story. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden what happened immediately after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, 8 and 9. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Sin has so twisted and darkened the hearts of people that over and over again through scripture, we see God's call ignored and rejected. In Proverbs 1.24, wisdom personified says, I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. This has been true of people everywhere but in a specially painful way, true of God's own people. As Zechariah 7 laments, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. This rejection is not theoretical and distant. Jesus tells this story in the presence of just such hearers, religious leaders plotting to destroy him. As John 1.11 describes, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The parable does not leave us to wonder about the fate of these rebels against the king. It is quite clearly spelled out. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Let's put a mental bookmark there and return to consider this in a few minutes. We learn something wonderful about the king next. He is not thwarted in his plans whatsoever. What may seem like a terrible setback in fact, is transformed into the most unexpected and expansive invitation imaginable. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Is this a small-hearted and impotent ruler, unable to give his son a great wedding feast? Certainly not. This story gives us a glimpse into generous grace. A king with a heart wider than we would ever dream of. The wedding feast is ready. What does this line mean for us? Not simply that preparations for a future bountiful feast will be made in God's presence. Consider that just a few days after Jesus told this parable, he would sit with his disciples at a simple meal of bread and wine and say, take, eat, this is my body. And drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 27, and 28. As he spoke this story, Christ himself is being prepared as the banquet of life 
for all who would come to God's kingdom. But now we encounter a crisis too in the parable. In the midst of festivities, the king comes upon a casual visitor, one who has no wedding garment. Now perhaps our culture's lack of regard for honor and decorum numbs our sensitivities to this blatant disrespect. But the very interaction between the king and guest reveals the guilt of this man. The king said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Entry is not permitted to one without appropriate attire. Now, how were the guests to get their wedding garment? The parable itself does not specify, but we find cultural evidence of rulers providing clothing to those they receive. As in Genesis 45:22, we hear about Joseph when he is ruling in Egypt. To each and all of his brothers, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. The bounty of the king provides covering for the guests. The point that we must see is that truly receiving God's invitation involves a great makeover. It begins with the covering of Christ's righteousness over our sin-stained heart. As Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And our transformation continues as the indwelling Holy Spirit conforms us to the likeness of God's Son. This is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Look at the response of the guest. And he was speechless. He is condemned by his own lack of explanation or excuse. Similarly, the day will come when all those who hope to gain entry to God's kingdom wearing their own <laughs> ruined rags of righteousness will be left without a word of argument or answer having fallen short of the right and pure standard of God, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Romans 3.19 As Isaiah 64.6 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. No one may dwell in the king's presence, dressed in their own efforts or goodness alone. And what is the outcome for this guest? Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now we need to circle back to the king and his dealings with these subjects. Does this parable feel harsh? Do we cringe at this depiction of God's wrath and justice? As Dr. Jared urged us back at the first week of our study, we need hearts that are humble and receptive to hear the surprising and sometimes shocking message of Jesus' parables. So asking for God's help, let's examine this at three different levels. First, let's look within the parable itself for the character of the king revealed through his decisive actions. One, the king shows patience and long-suffering even toward rebel subjects. He sends two rounds of messengers to those initially invited, and he asks for an explanation from the underdressed guest, gently addressing him as friend. Two, the king enacts justice. Atrocities of murder and abuse are not ignored, overlooked, or forgotten. The king delivers judgment where judgment is required. And three, the king receives both bad and good. The difference between the underdressed guest who was rejected and the throngs of those who were received is not the merit within the guest himself. Rather, we may think of it as a willingness to be cloaked by the king himself. Second, let's look at the parable within the time of Jesus speaking it. One, Christ is in the presence of his enemies, and yet he speaks a word of challenge and honest warning to them. He is courageous and undaunted by the animosity of his audience. Two, Jesus points to the judgment that will come at his second coming while there is still time for repentance. I wonder who of those faces we may see in God's kingdom one day because of his patience. Three, Jesus made the way that any could be received. Apart from his obedient offering of his life for our sin, there could be no entrance to God's kingdom for any of us. And finally, let's look at the parable as we hear it today and consider one, what is your response to the call of Christ? Even now, hear this invitation to come to the king, to enjoy the gift of his presence. There is no other source of satisfaction or fulfillment to compare to belonging to God's kingdom. As Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And two, what is your confidence to enter God's kingdom? Do you hope that generally you are better than a lot of people? Or is your confidence in Christ alone? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus covers us with his righteousness and then causes us to live in growing righteousness by his spirit. As the hymn puts it, we are dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The story ends with a conclusion and a response. Jesus finishes, for many are called, but few are chosen. The kingdom of heaven is for those chosen by the king. And what of the religious leaders who have been granted this gift of a warning? The next verse says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Their rebel hearts were unwilling to receive him as king. As the narrative of Matthew continues, Jesus navigates the plots of shrewd questions posed by his adversaries until finally, in an uncanny reflection of the underdressed guest, no one was able to answer him a word. Matthew twenty two forty six. Christ pronounces woe over these hypocritical leaders who walk in the ways of their fathers, killing, persecuting, flogging the messengers sent by God. He laments over the city of Jerusalem, whom he longs to gather to himself like a hen gathering her brood, but who would not come. The parable of the wedding feast is being enacted in these days. At last, Jesus draws away with his disciples, talking to them privately about the end of the age shortly before he goes to the cross. And it is in the midst of his instruction to them about the second coming of the Son of Man that we read our second parable today. This parable falls just before the parable of stewardship that Pam shared last week. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. 
afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This story shares a similar motif with our first. Again, we find the kingdom of heaven compared to the joyful and weighty celebration of a wedding. And in this case, our setting is the traditional period of waiting while the bridegroom and company traveled from the ceremony, which was held in one location, to the reception where guests would join them for the marriage feast. The question posed to our hearts is this. As you wait for the coming king, are you watchful and ready? We are shown 10 women, all eager to attend. Remember, this time the audience for Jesus' parable is not the hostile Pharisees, but his disciples and friends, those who demonstrated commitment to him. Yet among these 10 women, we find a subtle difference. Inwardly, it is identified as foolishness versus wisdom. Outwardly, it manifests as lack of oil, or bringing oil for their lamps. And the lamp described here was like a torch of twisted rags used like a wick for the oil dipped from their flask. As one commentator says, a torch without a jar of oil was as useless as a modern flashlight without a battery, of which we have many in our home. <laughs> but in many other respects, these women are similar. They all awaited the bridegroom's arrival. As hours passed, they all became drowsy and slept. They all rose and trimmed their lamps at the cry of the bridegroom's approach. They all wanted to be at that marriage feast. We may observe at this point that the delay of the bridegroom is lengthy. To our ears, 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ and still waiting, this point seems apropos. And let us also note that in this story, sleeping is not the problem. As embodied spirits, we were created to take rest at the end of a day's labor, and the wise needed that just as the foolish did. The point of crisis arrived with the bridegroom. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. What is this oil so essential in Jesus' story? We might simply call it a prepared heart. True faith lived out faithfully. We soon see the difference that it will make for the foolish and wise women. What is so foolish about the five foolish women? They fail to prepare for a vital coming need. Lamps cannot burn without oil. And even though these women may have hoped to presume upon the preparations of others, Jesus makes it clear that such sharing is impossible in the kingdom of heaven. For in truth, 
a heart of faith may not be borrowed any more than a broken tree limb can draw sap by sitting next to other limbs of a tree. You must have your own personal faith or you will not have it at all. The wise women, with their flasks of oil, place responsibility where it belongs in this story. And when the foolish women leave to buy oil, they discover that they have waited too long. A terminus has come. And when the door shuts behind the bridegroom and his joyful companions, they discover in dismay that they are not simply tardy. They are too late. Here is a call for urgency that you would not delay until tomorrow what God invites you to trust or obey today. If you are not sure if your heart is prepared for Christ's coming, I would love to talk and pray with you. Or one of the women in your small group would love to share more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't delay. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus closes this story with a call to those disciples gathered around him, those who would soon watch him lay down his life, fulfilling the purpose for his first coming. He knew the one in the circle of friends who would, in fact, betray him for a bag of silver. As he spoke to them, let us also receive his charge. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And how do we watch so as to have prepared hearts for his coming? We may take wisdom and warning from the sad rebuttal received by the foolish women. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. What could be sadder than a deceived and false presumption that one knows and is known by Jesus? May the very reverse be our earnest pursuit. May these days of waiting be spent seeking to know our Lord Christ more fully. Let us watch for him whom our heart loves, trusting his promises, reading and obeying his word, serving with and stewarding all his resources for the advance of his kingdom, so that at last our hearts may thrill together with the throng, singing, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19.7. Let's pray. Father, that you would open to us an invitation to come into your kingdom is a treasure beyond measure. And the cost of this invitation 
was the life of your own son offered in our place. So would you let us today not draw back or wait when we know what you would have us trust of your promises or walk forward in faith? Would you be the one our eyes are fixed on as we await your coming with joy? In Jesus' name, amen.